Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, all to another special birthday celebration episode as promised, my top 10 favourite episodes slash series of the last 10 years of When Diplomacy Fails. Hope you're enjoying these uh, birthday episodes and that you're maybe keeping track of which ones sound interesting if you haven't listened to any of these or all of these yet. Maybe this will make you a bit nostalgic for our sizable back catalogue. I actually took a look there and I think we're nearly at 600 episodes or we just passed 600 episodes overall. Just in case you weren't aware, if you want to actually listen to the older, older episodes, you cannot, for whatever reason, listen to them on Spotify, because Spotify only goes back a certain length, so you'll have to actually use one of those apps, such as Podcast Addict, what I use, or Overcast, or something, I can't remember what their names are, but you'll have to use one of those traditional apps, and I'm afraid Spotify just won't cut it, because it only goes back a certain time. Anyway, that's all to say. I'm very happy that you're joining me today, and I'm very excited to begin here. So without any further ado, let's just start. I don't think there's any rules or laws that I have to state. First of all, it's fairly self-explanatory. It's a top 10 list, starting from 10 and working our way down. I will say, though, that you're probably going to be surprised about what number one is, and maybe that will keep you sticking around to the end. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to let people know and tell people that we're celebrating 10 years of history podcasting. Anyway, let's get into this. So we're going to start by basically breaking the rule from the very beginning. I know it's not a very good sign, but I couldn't decide between these episodes these series so it's going to be a tie at number 10 and this tie is between the Anglo-Dutch war episodes and the Swedish deluges episodes. I think it was episodes 26 to 28 if I'm correct in that. What's the story with these ones? Well these episodes formed what I like to call season 3 of When Diplomacy Fails at the time in summer 2016. This was like my grand return to the 17th century, after the first iteration of the Thirty Years' War, and I was hungry to explore the lesser-known conflicts of this largely forgotten era. 
I knew almost instinctively that the period of 1650-72 to was a fascinating one, because I'd read some general surveys and I noted wars and incidents and crises that I'd never been taught in the conventional setting, and that's normally a clue that there's gold in those mines. For episodes 26, 27 and 28, I examined the two wars between English and Dutch, interrupted by a seismic conflict in East-Central Europe, when the Swedes invaded and ravaged Poland in the mid-1650s. The so-called Swedish deluges were arguably the death knell in Poland's status as a great European power. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth Colossus, which had once occupied Moscow, and this had happened barely 40 years before, almost ceased to exist under the pressure of Sweden's tenacious legions. The conflict eventually turned against Sweden, but not before Poland expended its greatest resources and lost the bulk of its power and wealth. On another level, the conflict was the culmination of the dynastic rivalry of the House of Vasa, which divided the once united family into two irreconcilable camps, one Catholic based in Warsaw and one Lutheran based in Stockholm. European relations were characterised by this rift since the 1590s and this deluge proved the high point. Poland never again rose to such heights and, save for a flutter under the genius of King Jan Sobieski, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth began its steady decline, which culminated in the Polish partitions a century later. Even in this conflict, though, warning signs were there. Brandenburg acquired the rights to rule East Prussia as it wished, having previously ruled the Duchy of East Prussia as a fief of the Polish crown. In return for supporting Poland in the war against Sweden, the great elector Frederick William of Brandenburg was now entitled to rule this distant, barren duchy as he liked. His successors would eventually style themselves as King in and then King of Prussia. But without this lesser-known war between Poland and Sweden, which made it possible, Prussian and subsequently German history would look very different indeed. This was one fascinating nugget from this short, conflict-ridden period, but it was far from the only one. The Anglo-Dutch wars are largely forgotten today, but they provide a fascinating glimpse into a mysterious period where the Dutch colonial empire ruled the waves and the British were barely emerging from decades of conflict. Of course, nobody told Britain it should stay in its place, and in the 1652-54 war with the Dutch, the first Anglo-Dutch war, London inflicted a shock defeat on the self-confident republic. But this also taught the Dutch lessons which were learned to devastating effect a decade later, when Charles II's struggling regime sought an easy victory to distract from disaster at home. Unfortunately for Charles, what he got was yet more disaster, and the stunning spectacle of Dutch ships sailing up the Thames, burning and stealing everything in their path, sent a strong message. As King Charles seethed, Parliament shrugged, and the Dutch were triumphant. But Charles didn't forgive or forget, and the thirst for revenge would compel him to try and settle the score with the Dutch via a new initiative alongside his new best friend, Louis XIV of France. But that's another story. So, it might seem a bit cheeky to lump these three wars together, but as they're so interconnected, I don't feel too bad. With the four-part First Anglo-Dutch War series, five-part Swedish Deluge series, and 12-part Second Anglo-Dutch War series, I told the story of mid-17th century Europe as it had never been told before, 
And as the size of these series shows, I was also getting to grips with the new When Diplomacy Fails formula that was more in-depth and gave me more room to kind of spread my wings and basically bring more of the conflict to you guys. Because of this, this chunk of three series deluges its way into the top ten spot. Number 9. The Suez Crisis Ah, the Suez Crisis, a part of my 1956 series which I released at the same time as the Korean War. It's a Patreon exclusive, so it's a bit cheeky to include it here, and only those that pledge a fiver a month or more can get access to it, but hopefully you'll forgive me for that. On the other hand, if in a list of my 10 favourite series, nothing from Patreon is included, well, that hardly serves as an incentive to sign up now, does it? Well, anyway, the 21-episode series examining the Suez Crisis of 1956 stands today as one of my favourites. It wasn't just the Cold War era that the incident familiarised me with, but the sheer amount of intrigue and scheming undertaken by Anthony Eden's government and the striking parallels between its ignoble example and the current law-breaking shower in number 10. Even more than that, though, the Suez Crisis is the story of an incredible conspiracy fostered by the British, French and Israelis in the backdrop of a period of immense instability in the Soviet Union. The scheme, as the name implies, concerned the Suez Canal and the recently empowered nationalist Egyptian government which took that canal into its own hands. Rather than declare its intention to seize the canal back, British forces left the region peacefully in July 1956 and then returned under the guise of a remarkable scheme. Only the British, it was said, were in a position to protect the canal from the consequences of an Egyptian-Israeli war, a war which the British and French set in motion. This facade held for barely a few hours before the Egyptians rallied and the United States got involved. Even now, nearly 70 years later, the whole thing seems impossible, but the arrogance and nascent imperialism of the British really did lead the way and underpinned much of London's actions. The scheme wasn't just unbelievable and embarrassing for Britain's American ally, it also came at the worst possible moment. Many miles from Suez, the courageous Hungarians were ruthlessly crushed by Soviet tanks and its independent government was destroyed. Thanks to Suez, though, nobody was looking at Budapest and the Soviets got away with it with barely an international protest to the palpable rage of Washington. And for all that... What did Eden's government have to show for it? Well, after lying to Parliament, failing to find a legal basis for their actions and royally failing in virtually every part of the plan, why this really does seem eerily familiar, London's shame reverberated across the world. The Americans mercilessly crushed any suggestions of Anglo-American support and after a tense standoff, the British were forced to back down. UN peacekeepers entered the canal zone and Eden's government collapsed soon after. It was, from beginning to end, an unmitigated disaster. Personally, I was enthralled and astonished by the sheer levels of scheming going on here, and I was also fascinated by the wrong-headed approach which predictably blew up in Eden's face in a moment of real catharsis. It stands today as one of my favourite stories, and I'd wager a few Brits know of it as well. So that's something I can hopefully rectify. 
So, what entitles the Suez Crisis to the spot of my ninth favourite series of the last ten years of podcasting? Well, for opening my eyes to the depths of British post-war scheming, for drawing me in with its impossibly untimely acts, and for providing such uncomfortable parallels with Britain's current crop of charlatans, the Suez Crisis schemes its way into the number nine spot. Number 8. The Korean War Ah, the mash nostalgia, how I missed it. Although it seems strange to think about it now, in 2017, North Korea was all the rage. And there was a lot of rage. All we saw was how angry this plump little man was, how vengeful he was towards the West, and how much he apparently despised those other Koreans in the South. I had been told that the settlement in Korea represents the longest truce in any conflict, or to put it another way, I've been told that the Korean War is still technically ongoing, since a truce is not a permanent peace settlement. Either way, this was enough to get me intrigued. I had vague ideas about what happened during the Korean War, but I also knew very little. So I began my research for this conflict, intending for it to be, maybe, 20 episodes or so and something a bit different after so much 17th century series. My research began with the audiobook of Max Hastings' Korean War, and then I raided Amazon, as I am wont to do, the library, and my dad's remarkable ability to source obscure books. Before long, Richard C. Thornton's book Odd Man Out came up on my radar. I knew I'd have to talk about China and Mao in the series, since the Korean War experienced a dramatic turning point when Chinese volunteers invaded North Korea from Manchuria and pushed the Allies back. So Thornton's book seemed to offer a great perspective on the diplomacy before the war, and especially the diplomacy between Mao, Stalin and Truman. Since I knew very little about these details, I quickly blitzed through Thornton's book when it arrived, and oh boy, it changed everything. Before I read Thornton's book, I had a lot of questions. Why, for instance, did Stalin seemingly engineer the Korean War, then leave the North Koreans to their own devices, barely helping them at all? Why did the Americans ignore repeated warnings sent over the clearest of channels to the effect that South Korea was in serious danger? Why, when given the opportunity, did Stalin fail to block the UN's police action in Korea, thus allowing the multinational military response to materialise and then proceed? These questions were foremost in my mind even before reading Thornton's book, so when I found that Thornton had answers for these conundrums, I found myself much more receptive to his interpretations and theories. Surprisingly, and unusually for me, this meant I was placed almost beyond the revisionist historian camp, and nearly in the camp of conspiracy theorist. Saying that though, I still stand by the presentation of the Korean War I gave you guys four years ago. When I launched the 48-episode series in 2018, I was nervous, but I was also excited because I knew that this was an approach of the same spirit as other revisionist series I'd done, like 1916 and the July Crisis. 
But there was also something a bit more outrageous about my theories this time round, and I'm not afraid to admit it. Thornton's thesis amounts to the idea that Truman deliberately used the Korean War to facilitate a massive rearmament program in the United States, cutting through partisan red tape and exhaustion after World War II to create essentially the military-industrial complex the United States is known for today. These goals were inscribed in a document known as NSC-68, which other historians touched on but didn't quite grasp the full significance of. As if that wasn't controversial enough, that I suggested Truman was a cynical schemer and not caught with his pants down when the Korean War erupted, as the conventional narrative goes, I also honed in on Stalin's motives. Stalin wanted the Korean War not as we might expect, so that the North could dominate the peninsula with a communist regime allied to Moscow, but so that the opposite would happen. He wanted the North to succeed enough to spook the West, who would intervene, push the North back, and then inevitably push too far, forcing the Chinese to respond militarily. When they did so, China would be strained and stretched, but above all, they'd be isolated from the West, whereas before, Mao had been reluctant to fully throw his lot in with Moscow and side with the Soviets, still leaving those channels open to the West. Not anymore. During and after the Korean War, Beijing had no choice but to align itself closer to Moscow's orbit, thus neutering the possibility of a third pillar in international relations, guaranteeing Soviet dominance in the communist sphere, and engendering a new cold period between the West and China, which didn't really end until the 60s. Of course, Stalin wouldn't live long to see it, but the effects were obvious. Not for another generation would Mao escape from this exile, and he was thus the odd man out, as Thornton describes, because unlike Truman or Stalin, the Korean War undermined his position and really did catch him with his pants down. Yikes, these leaders really ought to invest in a good belt. Anyway, I won't delve any further into my theories, but feel free to return to the beginning of the Cold War era and that Crash Course series I launched to accompany this series and listen in again. Episode 21 of the Korean War in support of my thesis, is where I lay down these ideas of mine in the most detail. In terms of the actual response, though, you guys were cautiously open-minded, or at least many were too polite to tell me where to go. Some negative reviews accused me of being overtly liberal, which is a weird criticism because I don't know what's liberal about this interpretation, maybe let me know. Still, you did concede that even while you might not agree with my conclusions, you accepted they weren't pulled from thin air or developed in some conspiratorial echo chamber. The evidence is there, and this thesis answers questions which the conventional approach simply doesn't answer. Maybe I did stretch my credibility by going down such an unconventional route, but as far as I know, this podcast doesn't suffer for it, so I don't regret it. So why does the Korean War get the number 8 spot? I had to be brave to present this thesis to you guys, to a degree unlike other series. These things didn't happen a century or more ago, and many listeners were alive and remember the Korean War on their radio sets or talking to their parents about it. Some even emailed me to let me know they met Truman in person or lived near his family home. Honestly though, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, nothing gets you guys riled up as much as when I talk about American history, which is unsurprising because most of you listening right now are from the United States. It's for this reason that I'll never cover the American Civil War, at least not from the perspective you're expecting. B. 
because I had to believe in myself and the evidence, because I had to overcome fears about how I would look during this series, and also because this was the first series I wrote and finished completely before releasing, which in itself was an absolute joy. The Korean War was a landmark moment in this show. The series ran from January to October 2018, at the same time as the 1956 series, as I said, which provided a good complement to it. It also gave us the Song of the Week, which I maintain was one of my favourite devices, though I know it wasn't to everyone's tastes. It was a great learning experience for me, and by the end I was more confident in myself and my ability to draw my own conclusions, as long as the evidence was there, of course. For these reasons, the Korean War controversially manoeuvres its way into my eighth favourite series of the last ten years. Number 7. The Versailles Anniversary Project After such a long and controversial series as the Korean War, you'd be forgiven for expecting 2018's act to take it easy for a while, and maybe return to the 17th century where things were safer. Considering the fact I'd just started a lecturing job in a university, and was, to use the scientific term, crapping my pants, I surely could have done without any excess stress, right? Well, yes, a detour back to the 17th century would have been swell, but how could I do that when in November 2018 a landmark centenary was upon us? 100 years to the day that the armistice was signed, thus ending the First World War, the Versailles Anniversary Project began. You may or may not know that it was no accident that the Korean War finished just as Versailles began. In fact, I've been researching and writing this series many weeks before, though contrary to my wishes, I didn't have all the writing and researching finished, a shortcoming which was to haunt me within a few months. I vividly remember being on holiday in Malta, sitting in one of those glorious rooftop bars, a pint of chisk in one hand and Margaret Macmillan's book The Peacemakers in the other. That was August 2018, and even as I read the book, 
I knew that the Versailles project was going to be a more ambitious one than the previous centenary of the Rising, and it would certainly be grander and more ludicrous in scope than the much more comfortable July Crisis project. In 2014, then 2016, and now 2018, I had made the most of the calendar to justify my punishing release schedule, but even I could have no idea that the story would take more than 60 hours and 80 episodes, nor could I have guessed that the project would spawn the Delegation Game, which I'll talk about in another one of those birthday episodes. Just like before, though, I was incredibly excited to begin. Paradoxically, even while we're told how awful the Treaty of Versailles was and how it was responsible for the Second World War, there's actually a lot of evidence out there and a lot of convincing arguments to accompany this evidence to suggest that Versailles hasn't really been given a fair shake. The issue is, as with so much of this history, you don't just have to know where to look, you also have to want to look in the first place. And I suspect many of us think we know the story already, and that since it's such a common refrain to batter the Treaty of Versailles over the head, there hardly seems any point in looking for alternative explanations. The thing is, though, when you do go looking, you come away with some breathtaking sources, foremost among them the complete set of minutes which were written down during the actual meetings of the Council of Five, which became four and then became the big three of Wilson, Clemenceau and Lloyd George. These three men, for very different reasons and with very different baggage, controlled the narrative and shaped the piece that followed. And while some schemed, others dreamed, and others engaged in villainous manipulation of the facts, the result they handed down to us has become part of the fabric of the 20th century. To be sure, the Treaty of Versailles was far from perfect, but it also wasn't the harebrained disaster it's often portrayed as. It's also vital to consider the treaty in the context of others that came before it, which helps dispel some of the myths regarding Versailles' status as an unfair document designed solely to punish Germany. Yes, it was designed partially to punish Germany, as were all treaties signed at the end of wars by a losing power. France had gone through this in 1815 and 1871 especially, when Prussia levied an eye-watering bill at the new French Republic's feet. But Berlin also infamously did this as well in March 1918, with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, when Russian lands were seized and Russia's allies were forced to capitulate to punishing terms. Punishing the losing party with a stiff treaty wasn't an invention of Versailles. It was the way the world worked, yet even then, Versailles wasn't as bad as we've been led to believe. Those reparations you hear so much about, thanks to a set of loopholes and asterisks, they weren't nearly as severe as you might have expected, since the bill was divided into A, B and C amounts, with only C being required, and even then, the Weimar regime was infamously reluctant to pay anything. This research on reparations particularly, and the expose on that subject, deserves much more attention in my view, but all of this groundbreaking stuff was the work of the late American historian Sally Marks, who only passed away in 2018. I feel it's a rank injustice that her research didn't receive the respect and recognition it deserved from a wider audience while she was alive. And my intention is still to underline her contribution as regularly and fervently as I can. To get the best flavour of this revisionist pie, I recommend checking out episode 58, called Reparations and War Guilt. That was probably my favourite episode of this series, because 
I got to launch one attack after another against the prevailing consensus about the Treaty of Versailles being bad, and that's that. Do you know what else was bad? The Wall Street crash. And that had far more to do with the Nazis coming to power than any other treaty. The German people may have been outraged at some of Versailles' clauses, but they were just as outraged that Germany had supposedly been stabbed in the back by socialists and Jews, just as their soldiers were fighting and dying for the fatherland. Rather than believe in this Versailles myth, and rather than be angry at the architects of that treaty, we should instead criticise the likes of Hindenburg and Ludendorff, both of whom, in their own way, were instrumental in allowing the the stabbed-in-the-back myth to fester and expand, when they, as the head of the German High Command during World War I, knew better than most how thoroughly Germany had been defeated. It was these two men, after all, that asked the civilians to request an armistice in the first place, and they then left those civilians to pick up the pieces while they enjoyed new careers as president in Hindenburg's case, or as sponsor and participant in the failed beer hall putsch in Ludendorff's case. Admitting the truth of Germany's defeat was too painful for these proud, fussy men. And it was so painful, apparently, that they took the focus off their record and placed it unjustly onto the Allies. Again, it should be said, Versailles wasn't perfect. But far less perfect than Versailles were the literal Nazis and the enablers in Germany who stood beside them. Listen to the 85 episodes if you have 60 hours to kill and want to learn more, but I for one still get shivers when I think of how exhausted I was during that period, and I went into this on the retrospective episode before this one, so listen to that if you want to know more about that struggle. I don't for one minute regret my efforts though, as I now have the July Crisis and Versailles Anniversary Project as my testament to the period and from a perspective and in detail that you're unlikely to hear anywhere else. For ruining my poor nerves, Mr. Bennett, the Versailles Anniversary Project is well-deserving of its number seven spot. It was a labour of immense love and passion, and I'm so glad I powered through even while I think we were all exhausted by the era in the end. Just imagine how contemporaries of the treaty felt. Of course, Versailles was also a mammoth research project and enabled me to further hone my research abilities and critical analysis skills, experiences which I really valued, and which made me a better historian. For these reasons, the Versailles Anniversary Project negotiates its way into my seventh favourite series of the last ten years. Number six, The Thirty Years' War both series. When I finished the First World War series in spring 2013, I knew I needed a break from all things 20th century, and I also knew that other eras out there were more than deserving of my attention. Just then, I landed a new job as a barista in Costa Coffee, and my dreams for another sublime summer of coffee running and podcasting went up in flames. Rather than releasing an episode every week as I'd wanted, I managed only four episodes in as many months. Here I experienced that classic dilemma of history podcaster, when life gets in the way of your nerdy hobby. Still, after allowing time to read and explore, in May 2013 I landed on the War of the League of Cambrai, a war which lasted from 1508 to 1516 and featured some frankly ludicrous and hilarious examples of diplomacy. I'd love to return to that war in more detail in the future, 
but as I still used the old one hour per episode formula, I continued to the next war, which concerned the Dutch Revolt. Episode 23 was a one-off looking at the Greek War of Independence from the 1820s. Still not sure what I was thinking there. And episode 24 was the Spanish Armada. By now, having a feel for the era, I felt ready to tackle the big one. The conflict that everyone said was too big. The one that nobody had the stones to look at in the podcasting world. Probably because the history podcasting world was much smaller in 2013 than it is now. Either way, the Thirty Years' War loomed before me, and I believed that, having examined the conflicts that preceded it, I was in a pretty good position to understand the war and do it justice in podcast form. As we were still in the old format of WDF, I wrote and released episodes as I went, meaning that even as I began this series all the way back in August 2013, I had absolutely no notion of how the Thirty Years' War progressed, or even how it ended, and I admitted as much in those early episodes. Thanks to Geoffrey Parker's book Europe in Crisis, I did know who the major players were, but it almost seemed like I just could never really wrap my head around all the detail or all the events, even though they were at least slightly familiar. For the next few months, though, I was hooked on this conflict called the Thirty Years' War. As I progressed into my third and final year of my Bachelor of Arts in History and Politics, with the question of what to do next rattling around in my mind, I found great comfort in the scope and spectre of this conflict. I quickly realised nobody had really plumbed the depths of this war before, and there were many depths to plumb which you would all find as fascinating as I did. Cue some obscure sources on Russo-Swedish diplomacy, and I became even more invested. Releasing episodes between 60 and 70 minutes long, sometimes two at a time, my release schedule had to increase to complement the massive amount of information that the conflict threw my way. By April 2014, I had reached the point in the story where France got involved, and the epic Avengers showdown between the Habsburgs and the Triple Alliance of the Dutch, Swedes and French took centre stage. The drama, the intrigue, the scheming, the diplomacy and the warfare... It all contributed to a saga unparalleled in early modern Europe, and as the episodes kept coming out, and you kept asking for more, I fell further and further in love with the period, to the extent that I didn't want to leave it behind. But other events beckoned and called for my attention, so when the story was finally wrapped up on the 22nd of June 2014, I had barely a few days to breathe before something very special and unique pulled me in, and I'm sure you know what that was. Fast forward nearly four years later, and even after examining many events following the Thirty Years' War, such as the aforementioned Swedish deluges and Anglo-Dutch wars, and the Franco-Dutch war as well, I still felt I wanted more from the Thirty Years' War. Why not approach the conflict again, but this time with my more in-depth formula, and this time not flying by the seat of my pants as I had done originally? Would you guys put up with another series on the Thirty Years' War, though? I believed you would, and not just because it was 400 years since the war began. Yes, you could say I fell victim to another anniversary. I also then messily tried to release episodes on 17th century warfare to whet your appetite, before being forced to put this on hold. Really, it wasn't until September 2019, in line with starting the PhD, that I was in a position to begin my new and improved 30 years war series with a bang. And from then to now, this period of history has been our home. I would like to think you'd agree that revisiting this familiar era has been worth it. I certainly think it has been, since I prepared this series well in advance in anticipation of the PhD. 
This also contributed to the book, which was published in July 2020, but which I'll be self-publishing in the near future, now that I bought back the rights, so don't buy Forgot of the Devil just yet. Expect audiobooks to go along with it, and expect me to let you know when it's ready. In 82 episodes, we're covering the Thirty Years' War in unprecedented detail, using a wide range of primary and secondary sources, so this series stands as the standard account of this conflict in audio form, and when the time is right, hopefully in written form as well. So, what makes the Thirty Years' War entitled to such a position in this list? For being the anchor of my passions for 17th century history, for giving me a second chance to explore the fascinating era, for presenting this period in a scale never before heard and breaking new ground in the process, for furthering my efforts into other related projects, be they fiction in the Matchlock series or non-fiction with For God or the Devil, The Thirty Years' War defenestrates its way into my sixth favourite series of the last ten years. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project a day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago. Number 5. The July Crisis Anniversary Project Would When Diplomacy Fails be the show it is today without the July Crisis? Probably not. This series was, in many ways, my breakout moment. It was when diplomacy fails in its most valuable and shocking because it presented a moment in history, well, the months of June, July and August 1914, basically, in a manner never before heard. That's not to say books were not out there that covered the event in great detail, but that's another key point. The July Crisis Project demonstrated so clearly to me that, no matter how many books might exist on the topic, there are occasions when podcasting can bring this history to an audience even better and more efficiently than the written word. 
Of course, before speaking this series into life, I first had to write it, and it still amazes me just how unplanned this series was. The new formula of finishing the scripts and the whole narrative before recording had not yet been established, so in the spring of 2014, after releasing the final hurried episode of my original 30 Years War series, I sat down to examine this pivotal moment in world history just in time for a pivotal centenary. If I could hug past Zack for doing this, I absolutely would, because what happened next defined when diplomacy fails as the place to be for diplomatic and revisionist history. And my listeners weren't the only ones forced to revise what they thought they knew about how the First World War began. You may recall, and I know that some of you do because you let me know, that in my first proper series looking at the First World War itself, I covered the July Crisis in a single episode, which is still available at the very beginning of the feed. The First World War is numbered as episode 20, but don't worry, the episodes that came before have simply been remastered a few years later. This is all to say, I don't remember feeling embarrassed or ashamed that I had gotten the July Crisis so wrong when I examined it originally, even though there's only a year and a half between the First World War series and my July Crisis series. I also don't remember being very resistant to changing my mind about the whole thing. I don't even recall thinking that you guys would be annoyed or put off by how this 20-something-year-old chopped and changed his entire thesis for how the First World War began. That's because, when I read The Sleepwalkers by Christopher Clarke, I realised that the history of this event was quite unlike anything I had heard before. Realising this, I also realised something else. If I had been misled into thinking that the First World War was all Germany's fault from an early age, surely there were many out there just like me in the same boat. And this got me very excited. Even in my preliminary research, where I'd expected to just tell the story I'd told before, I quickly realised there was much more going on here, and that it was infinitely more interesting and exciting than the mainstream version of history would have you believe. We don't have to run through a blow-by-blow account of the July Crisis here, but some highlights should be pointed to. Particularly, seeing the German declaration of war on the 1st of August less as the culmination of a great aggressive scheme, and more as a desperate act by a government that felt it had little choice, I think this takes a lot of the insidious themes out of the Germany did it narrative. Some of these sinister motives could be placed on the Russians, though, especially Sazonov, the Russian foreign minister, who initiated Russian mobilization a full week before the Germans declared war. Was mobilization the same thing as making war? Berlin thought so, thanks to its inflexible Schlieffen plan and the need to attack France before attacking Russia. This central weakness in German strategy proved disastrous in the long run, but other parties hardly helped matters. My conclusion contains few smoking guns, and instead looks like a depressing amalgamation of several men who should have done better and should have acted differently. It was, in the final analysis, a great example of diplomacy failing, on perhaps the largest scale then seen, and while legions of historians have sought to answer the pressing question of why World War I happened ever since, the fact that we are still asking it should tell you all you need to know. So, considering its role in shaping how I approached history and structured my series, considering how much you guys enjoyed it and told your friends to listen in, considering how often the July Crisis is pointed to as the moment when When Diplomacy Fails became something really special, the July Crisis Anniversary Project sleepwalks its way 
into my fifth favourite series of the last 10 years. When Diplomacy Fails presents... 1916 A special centenary miniseries exploring the context, characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history. The 1916 Rising Number 4. The 1916 Rising Ah yes, the first half of 2016. A time before Brexit, before Trump and before the scales truly fell from Zach's eyes. While I was feeling so safe and secure in myself, I decided to take something of a risk. You see, the centenary of a really important event in Irish history was fast approaching, and having listened to the rhetoric put out by my country leading up to that point, I was keenly aware that I did not see eye to eye with many on how the Rising was viewed. Often seen as a heroic, brave last stand against the Brits, which paved the way for Irish independence, Zach saw the Rising very differently. I'm not exactly sure when my contrarian approach to the Rising actually began, but I don't really remember ever seeing it as a particularly glorious moment, despite the outraged and stunned reactions of my peers. By early 2016, though, I was perhaps feeling more daring, having gotten my master's in history and having had many conversations at the pub with my master's peers. So to coincide with the centenary, a trend I would return to with Versailles two and a half years later, I began researching and writing a 16-part series, giving the facts of the rising, including the background details of unionism and republicanism, Irish political activism under the British, and many more details besides. I tried to make it as even-handed as possible, but I also wanted to look at the facts objectively. Did the Rising make Ireland better? Did it really achieve the ends which are often attributed to it? Or is there a different story within its events, and lessons to be learned therein? If you have listened, you'll know where I stand, so it won't come as a shock to you when I say I believe the Rising was a catastrophic mistake for every community on this island, for the Irish people and for Irish culture and statehood generally. Acting without a mandate from the Irish people, at a time when many had relatives fighting on the Western Front, the rebels rose up in Dublin on Easter Monday 1916, and a week later were defeated and pelted with rubbish once their week-long stand had fizzled out. The British reacted with predictable brutality, crushing the rising as though the rebels were agents of their German foe, which, if you read the proclamation, was a reasonable conclusion to come to, since the Irish rebels referenced our gallant allies fighting in Europe. What was less reasonable or logical was how the British military governor in Dublin responded. By authorising the execution by firing squad of the ringleaders, London transformed these rebels from unpopular rogues into noble martyrs, an outcome they were warned against but completely ignored. Thanks to this sequence of events, the Sinn Féin party, which was hilariously connected to the Rising, even though it had literally nothing to do with it, was catapulted to the forefront of Irish politics, winning a majority of seats in the December 1918 election. 
When the British balked at this outcome and the Sinn Féin deputies refused to take their seats in Westminster, a new Dáil, or Irish Parliament, was declared by those elected figures in January 1919. And after some failed efforts to petition the Paris Peace Conference, the Irish War of Independence followed. As I pointed out in that series, even after this bloody conflict, the Irish were only able to get as good a result as that which had been gradually achieved following decades of political activism in Westminster. That is, home rule. With the Irish Free State still linked to Britain through the King and Foreign Policy and Northern Ireland cut off from Dublin as well. Even after all that bloodshed, the best outcome was the same result that Irish politicians had peacefully fought for in London throughout the 19th century. The only difference between Home Rule and what we got in the end was that Unionists had been scared away from any possibility of compromise with the Nationalists thanks to the Rising. And even if Northern Ireland had been separated peacefully, in a world without the Rising this wouldn't necessarily matter, because at least without the Rising, nobody would have died. There's also the aftermath of the Rising to consider, and how the actions of those rebels bled into the political fabric of the Irish state. When the Troubles flared up in Northern Ireland in the 1960s and 70s to coincide with the civil rights movements around the world, Irish people were greeted with a new iteration of the Irish Republican Army, one which lacked a mandate to act with violence, just as surely as those rebels in 1916 lacked that same democratic mandate. Yet, while it became easier to condemn those iterations of the IRA when they bombed shopping centres and didn't really seem all that interested in any kind of coherent policy, it was uncomfortable and in many respects impossible for Irish statesmen to condemn those rebels of 1916, because the Irish state and statehood had become completely intertwined with their violent example. Perhaps, had the earlier examples of Irish political courage and activism not been forgotten, those Irish politicians at the turn of the century would have had a greater legacy to call upon than that which, well, let's be honest, Eamon de Valera wished for us to embrace. I won't get up on my soapbox again, don't worry, but if you do want to hear the rest of this TED Talk, check out that series itself where I go into more detail. So, why was a series that aroused such passions within me, and which surely opened me up to a lot of hate mail, given this number four spot? Well, Difficult though it was to make this series, it proved more than worth it in the end. Not only did it communicate to a wider, non-Irish audience the reality of the rising on the ground, it also provided me with an ideal opportunity to create what amounts to my manifesto when it comes to Irish history in this period. And trust me, I did receive my fair share of hate mail for this series, but I also enjoyed conversations with many civilised folks who were open to my arguments and eager to learn more about how Irish history has been corrupted and manipulated by this undercurrent of unnecessary violence. It was in many ways cathartic to express myself and my philosophy in this series, and it stands today as one of my proudest achievements because, like it or not, it is Zach at his most passionate, honest and personal. It also shows, I believe, how important history is and how national myths, however apparently important, should never be immune to scrutiny, or to the idea that we should and could do better when teaching our children where we came from. For these reasons, The Rising rebels its way into the position of my fourth favourite series of the last ten years. Number 3. Bismarck, Rise and the Promise of More Bismarck 
Well, this should be an obvious one. Bismarck has always had a firm hold on me, ever since my first Franco-Prussian War episode was released. The more I learned about Bismarck and his character, the less I liked, but paradoxically, the more fascinated by the man I became. I no longer worship him as I used to, but despite this, he is my favourite historical figure, and for reasons which I have run through countless times already. However, when it came time to design a new format of a When Diplomacy Fell series, I wanted to cover ground I hadn't looked at countless times already, though I'm sure you would have been happy for me to revisit his greatest hits again. I wanted to look at Bismarck before he was the Iron Chancellor, when he was a waster, wandering around his estates, or when he was a lonely member of the Prussian Landtag, finding his feet and his voice. Much like I'm endlessly fascinated by how wars happen, I could not stop obsessing over the mystery of how Bismarck, at 32 years old, suddenly embarked on a political career which was to culminate 15 years later in his assumption of the Prussian Chancellorship. As it happens, the story involves several hilarious anecdotes, the exercise of iron will, a lot of conveniently placed friends, and a whole lot of expended energy. But really, covering Bismarck's career before the greatest hits, and up to the Schleswig-Holstein War of 1864, only confirmed what I already knew of the man that he was a once-in-a-generation figure, and that he was in the right place at the right time to bring Prussia to unforeseen levels of power and prestige. I also found the Schleswig-Holstein War itself to be a fascinating example of Bismarck's scheming in its purest form, and how at the end of the day, Bismarck was forced to rely on his soldiers to do the grunt work, even while he set up the ideal circumstances. Although he met with even greater success thereafter, his diplomatic finesse arguably peaked in this first conflict. In his conflicts with Austria and then with France, Bismarck made use of brute force and then personal manipulation to achieve his ends. If you'd like to learn more about those psychological tactics, check out my two-parter called Bismarck and Provocation, looking at how Bismarck goaded Napoleon III into declaring war in summer 1870. I released those episodes during the five weeks to run wild extravaganda in 2017, so it might require a bit of scrolling to find them, but if you like Bismarck, you should enjoy it. So, what gives Bismarck Rise such a high position on this list? Well, you may have expected him to rank even higher, but really, Bismarck's position in my heart is already assured. This Bismarck Rise series really established for me how hungry you all are for more. Even after countless failed promises, you'll hopefully believe me when I say I'm really looking forward to hitting the next points of his story. It's pointless to give a date at this stage about when these Bismarck series are going to come out, so just listen to my episode detailing what I plan for When Diplomacy Fails in the future to learn more. For redefining the world order, for giving all 30-somethings hope that they can make something of their lives, and for dazzling Zach at every stage of his life, Bismarck and his Rise series is my third favourite series of the last 10 years. Number 2. Holocaust Interview I've talked about this in another episode, so I won't go into too much detail here, but it should be said that getting Tommy Reichenthal on the podcast back in 2018 remains one of my proudest achievements. Why? Aside from the obvious reason that Tommy's story is so chilling, so engrossing, and so deserving of attention, by having him on, I got to harness one of podcasting's great attributes, 
the ability to record and preserve history for posterity. It's an underrated aspect of history podcasts in many ways, but it should be reiterated, because few things are more precious to mankind than living sources like these. Tommy is the embodiment of this idea, having made it his mission to spread the word of his experience where he saw the horrors of Belson concentration camp as a young boy. Tommy is, as he notes, condemned to remember all the anti-Semitism directed towards his family in 1930s Czechoslovakia, as he is condemned to remember all the death, all the violence and all the horror. In fact, rather than describing it, I'll just play a snippet here of one of his memories of being in Belson camp. I, of course, I don't uh, forget the day we arrived. Uh, it was raining, it was cold outside November, you know, in mm. northern Germany, very cold. It, suddenly the door was open and we were greeted. We shouted, heraus, heraus, mm. out, out. And they took us, put us in rows and then we were marched for about two hours. We marched uh, through a forest raining, we were absolutely soaked, and after night it was, uh, suddenly we saw this big chimney and uh, the fire was coming out of the chimney, so you can imagine, the adult among us, they thought this is, they they know about the crematoria, about the the gas chamber, they thought they are taking us there, so... You can imagine the atmosphere. They thought this is the last yeah. minute hour that we are walking on this earth. As children, we didn't know. Again, I, I wasn't taught. But we went to the camp and you, you could see the watchtower with the searchlights and mm. the machine guns and the guards and things. All very frightened. We were put, uh, gone to the one of the blocks, and they told us, go to sleep. Next morning, we were just told that we are in Belgian-Belsen. We didn't know where Belgian-Belsen was, or mm. what Belgian-Belsen was, and that um, in, we are in German. That's all what they told us. We saw around the uh, skeleton. There were no, um, they were all malnourished. Mm. They had shaved heads. You know, the, the eyes were sunk into the face. You, you wouldn't think they were human beings. Yeah. You, we didn't know if they were men or they were women. Right. Because they had no attributes. You know, yeah. they were just skeleton. you know. After only a couple of days, we discovered that we were in a woman's camp. Oh, really? <laughs> and we used to see these skeletons walking around. And uh, occasionally they would fall down. Because we were in the area where the hospital was. Okay. Uh, hospital. I mean, yeah. they, were, they, they were not in the hospital for, for to be cured. There mm. were no medication there or anything. Mind you, when the camp was liberated, mm. they found a hut mm. full with medication. Really? Full with medication, like wow. a, properly for a hospital. They never used it. Oh. The women that were brought in there they were brought there because they were mortally sick. Mm. So we saw these women walking around and occasionally they would just collapse, mm. fall down. And as children, we used to play outside. We would stop playing and waiting to see if she will get up or not. Mm. We knew if she got up, 
She's another day to live. Yeah. If she didn't go up, she died. Yeah. So we actually saw people die in front of our eyes. Wow. As kids, we saw people dying. They fell, never got up again. Wow. That was the end of it. I feel so incredibly privileged to have played even this small role in recording and preserving his story. And for these reasons, Tommy Reichenthal and his three-part interview are my second favourite series of the last decade. If you've stuck around till now, you're probably really curious as to what number one is, so let's just go with it. My favourite series of the last ten years is the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. The sneaky Anglo-French diplomacy, how King Louis XIV of France maintains the facade of a Dutch alliance but in reality has plans to make the Dutch pay for the crime of reducing his triumphs in previous conflicts with Spain. Charles II's great plan for revenge after the Dutch had sailed up the Medway in July 1667 and utterly humiliated his nation and reign in the Second Anglo-Dutch War. These two figures combined to lead their nations into costly and ultimately unrewarding war in what they thought would be a lightning victory. There was just so much going on in this conflict, so much to sink my teeth into over those 24 episodes, so I'll do my best to explain why this series is my favourite now. Initially, when the French and the English invaded the Netherlands in 1672 after saying they wouldn't, the Dutch were stumped. It was Rampjaar, the year of disaster, when poor Johan de Witt, the, essentially the Prime Minister of the Dutch Republic, and his brother were torn to pieces by the Dutch mob, and eaten, some people say, and William of Orange returned to his power base. Comparable to Churchill taking the reins of the British government on the 10th of May 1940, it might have been great to reach a political triumph, such as William had just gained, but... There was a lot of work to do, with the enemy being at the gates. William's own military initiatives were not particularly successful, thanks in large part to the overwhelming Anglo-French numbers and the years that those two parties had taken to prepare for this conflict. So the Dutch tried a different tactic. They unleashed the dikes and they flooded their lands, making any prospect of rapid gains impossible, notwithstanding the misery and opposition from the Dutch peasantry. Desperate times meant desperate measures, but the Dutch didn't have to hold on for long. Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor got involved, and Charles II began to suffer at home. You should check out episode 29.80 of this series for one of my favourite episodes. Now, having said that, at this point I had literally just discovered Patreon, so you'll have to suffer through my newfound excitement with that, or have your fast-forward button at the ready. Eventually, England would turn against the French, and the English public would sympathise with the Dutch, a sign of things to come. Charles II makes peace in 1674, and the war becomes one of the Dutch and the Habsburgs versus the French. Somehow, well, thanks to a durable regime and skilled statesmen, France survived and excelled in many respects, and the war represented the true beginning of the end of the Dutch Golden Age, so at least in that, the French and the English were successful. But it also represented the official beginning on the world stage of the rivalry between Louis XIV and William of Orange, two different but distantly related figures 
whose hostility would shape European relations for another generation, arguably peaking when William of Orange landed in England in 1688 and basically said, hey, I'm king now. Although this was a hugely significant constitutional and political moment for the English, for William and for Louis, this move represented a masterstroke and an escalation of the rivalry which had its genesis here in 1672. The Franco-Dutch War might have ended in 1678, but the rivalry between the Dutch and French rulers was destined to continue. And of course, I cannot wait to resume this story, because if you'll remember, I cover the last siege of Vienna in 1683, and even though I planned to go further, I never really got around to it. To finish Louis' story and capture the importance of the period for Britain, and for Ireland, by the way, it will be necessary to cover all of this in the future, so I hope you'll join me for this and our coverage of the War of the League of Augsburg, also known as the Nine Years' War. So, why do I love it so much? Well, to get to the root of that, you'll have to look at the episodes that cover the sneaky pre-war diplomacy, the enigmatic and dastardly schemers, the beginning of several important European trends, and also, unsurprisingly, the fact that this conflict is pretty much unknown today. This is true even in stories of Louis XIV, which normally begin in 1688 with the Nine Years' War, or in some cases the War of the Spanish Succession in 1701. In many ways, the Franco-Dutch War series is the purest form of when diplomacy fails. It's where we tick virtually every box of the when diplomacy fails formula, all the while providing the only audio account of this conflict and bringing it to a wider audience. For all these reasons, the Franco-Dutch War is the sleeper surprise for my favourite When Diplomacy Fails series of the last decade of history podcasting. Perhaps if you'd like to see what the fuss is all about, you'll scroll down about six years into the past and check it out. So that's it, my ten favourite episodes and series from the last decade of When Diplomacy Fails. Did the order surprise you? More importantly, I'd love to know, what was your favourite episode or series to come from these ten years? Was it something that didn't even make the cut, like a shorter one-off episode that piqued your interest? Or was it a special that I didn't even talk about, like my foray into Napoleon, or my attempt to examine the First World War, or the aforementioned Siege of Vienna series? Whatever your feelings or your answers, I would really encourage you to share in your nostalgia in the When Diplomacy Fails group. We're having something of a party for the month of July 2022, so why not drop by and share your views with the 1200 history friends that are already there? I look forward to seeing you soon, but until then, my name is Zach, and of course, I have to say this, a huge thanks for joining me on this journey, whether it was for these 10 years, 5 years, or just this episode, really. Thank you so much for making this history nerd's dream possible. Here's to 10 more years, and tens of thousands of more episodes, series, and specials. Cheers. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.